listening to Money on the Left, proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. Dissolution, destituency, deconstruction, devolution. Over the last several decades, these sorts of destructive practices have been championed by two distinct and ostensibly disparate camps. On one hand, neoliberals or members of the neoliberal thought collective have worked diligently and with great discipline at dissolving modernist forms into ever more particulate markets, devolving responsibility for collective immiseration to local governments and rational individual agents, and valorizing the displacement of conventional forms of being and working in common with new, disruptive innovations. On the other hand, Many of the same practices have been valorized and authorized by the epistemological frameworks of contemporary critical theorists, like Giorgio Agamben and others, who predicate meaningful political freedom upon localized, destituent, and destructive acts. This, at least, is the argument at center of Anna Kornblu's brilliant and provocative book, The Order of Forms, Realism, Formalism, and Social Space, published in 2019 with the University of Chicago Press. We were thrilled to talk with Anna, who is Director of Graduate Studies and a Professor of English at the University of Illinois in Chicago, about this book and its arguments, which we see as in many ways analogous to our own project with Money on the Left. At the same time as forms might oppress, Anna argues, they may also liberate. So, get off your butts and organize. She doesn't say that exactly, but make sure to stay tuned to the end for a rousing call to action for us self-loathing lefty academics. Thanks to Rich Farrell for the transcripts, to Megan Sauce for the episode graphic, and to Nanin Kula for the theme tune. If you like what you hear and would like to support our efforts, please visit our Patreon page, which is linked to in the show notes. Anna Kornblu, welcome to Money on the Left. Ah, thanks for having me. It's so fun to be here. Yeah, it's so great to have you here, and especially since you are an old, dear friend of mine who I have learned so much from uh, throughout the years, and it's just, it's great to have you on on our podcast, finally. Oh, it's, it's, it's really exciting to listen to you guys and see the conversations you've been creating. Thanks. So maybe to begin, um, you know, I know you, but <laughs> but our audience doesn't necessarily know you. Maybe you can say a little bit about your your scholarly background, maybe your personal background, if you feel like that's relevant. Sure. Um, I live in Chicago, where I, where the best city, <laughs> where I teach at the <laughs> University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, I'm in the English department, and I teach a lot of. Uh, literature, especially focused on the novel and the history of the novel, and as well as film, and then a fair amount of literary and critical theory when I'm lucky to do that. Um, I earned a PhD in English with a focus on theory uh, at Irvine, um, and I met Scott when I lived in Los Angeles in that time when I was getting a master's in film at UCLA, uh, and before that I um, had an undergrad degree in political theory. Um, and I love the Midwest. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, I, I'm stupidly lucky that I'm a person who got a job in 2008 and um, a job with job security and with research money. And, um, and I just couldn't be more fortunate and wish nothing but these conditions for my fellows. Perhaps more so than some of our regular guests, your work is deeply critical theoretical, and I think you have a, a grammar and a style that is um, it's very precise and it does a lot of um, rich, important work. And, and so we decided, you know, we can improvise it a little bit and, and that's cool, but we decided we were going to 
put together some more formal questions in order to kind of honor honor the complexity of your thoughts. So perhaps unlike some of our other episodes, we're, we're going to unabashedly read some of these questions <laughs> um, just because we wanted to make sure we were getting it right. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to Billy to take the first one. We've invited you here to speak with us to, to uh, specifically about your brilliant scholarly monograph, The Order of Forms, Realism, Formalism, and Social Space, which was published in 2019 with the University of Chicago Press. In that book, you articulate a scathing critique of what you deem the, quote, anarcho-vitalist tenor of much contemporary critical theory. Conversely, you develop a comparatively capacious political formalism, which you uncover in the modern novel. We would love it if you could flesh out some of these reciprocal moves for us, how they intervene in debates and critical theory past and present, and what they tell us about the construction of what you term social space. Sure. Thanks for that question. Um, yeah, so it is um, a book that's integrating a lot of different things, right? Um, and chiefly, it's trying to integrate aesthetics and politics and trying to think about the ways that um, the traditions of critical theory and of humanistic interpretation, especially for people who work in the aesthetic humanities, so literature, uh, film, art, and so on, uh, media, how they have um, tended to think about what is that relationship between aesthetics and politics? What does art have to teach us about politics? What is artistic about political arrangement and political dispensation? Um, and maybe to try to put my finger on some of the um, kind of biases or habits that have um, kind of emerged in uh, some of those traditions. So specifically, I try to track a little bit um, a kind of position that would associate freedom with formlessness and would privilege a lot of artistic forms of dissolution and disintegration and fragmentation, hybridity, irony, instability, and so on, uh, have this whole aesthetic vocabulary about those things because one imagines that those are actually political virtues or political values or that they're emancipatory. Um, and so what gets built into that, I think, reinforcing framework then is some um, judgments about what kind of art is good, <laughs> what kind of art is politically educative, and what kind is politically, say, um, not conservative, right? Uh, innovative. And then also some mistakes maybe about politics, um, chiefly some biases against institutions, a kind of reflexive anti-statism we see across, I think, aesthetic humanist positions, um, and a kind of um, just horizon in which what we understand to be the nature of a political act is to disrupt something, <laughs> to break something, to suspend something, um, rather than to hold it in place, right? Or rather than to build it up. I wonder if you could follow up specifically about your your critique of uh, Giorgio Gambin's uh, idea of, um, I think it's a destituent power. Is that, right. is that correct? Yeah. You know, spell out. Yeah. Right. So I sort of take him as exemplary of some of these habits of mind um, in the opening of the book, um, because he's such a tremendously influential theorist in the 21st century. You know, I think Homo Sacra's Stanford University Press's bestselling book of all time, for instance, <laughs> um, and like 30,000 copies. Um, <laughs> and, um, so, and he has this, um, you know, kind of notion in his uh, consummation 
writing of um, Foucault's biopolitics in his um, really transhistoricizing of um, these tendencies of the state and of institutions to control life. Um, he has this consummation of an idea that um, all of Western political power could be um, schematized as according to its constituent tendencies, right? To bring, to make things and to contain things and to bring things under the purview of, of control and under the purview of power. And that the alternative to him is destituent power, you know, taking it apart, right? Um, and that this is the kind of realm of play and realm of freedom, a realm of dissolve for him. Um, if constituent power is violent, he thinks, like any act of kind of making and forming and putting into place, instituting is always going to be violent, then um, if you want to be on the side of the good, you have to be on the side of the unmaking. So I take him as really just kind of you know, emblematic of or kind of crystallization of um, these these habits again of of humanist method, humanist interpretation um, that have built-in aesthetic suppositions and political suppositions, and that I find um, insufficient, really. So you've named Giorgio Gombin. Are there any other sort of leading lights of this uh, position that you are, in fact, taking a position uh, against? Yeah, you know, this is such an interesting problem, right? It's like when you're trying to put your finger on a structure of, of not a feeling, but of ratiocination, right? Like a, a kind of prevalent form of argumentation, um, you know, and the one that crosses a, um, disciplines and crosses uh, schools, then who are its leading lights or does it have leading lights, right? Like is an episteme identifiable with a person and um, what's the frame of argument in which you would say like there are leader, there are figureheads of this movement and then um, their bodies of thought are consistent with it, with it uh, entirely and so on, right? Because obviously I have friends who deeply love Agamben, <laughs> you know, who, who are unhappy about this characterization. But I think some of the other, um, you know, sort of uh, positions that I might name in the book um, or certainly in schematizing the field would be queer antinomianism, uh, certain kinds of queer of color critique and of feminist critique of, of institutions, um, the kind of immediatizing anarchic tendency in certain strains of, of Marxist theory, um, the uh, even um, uh, the in the tradition of thinking aesthetics and politics, the almost um, messianic or ceaselessly negative kinds of positions of certain texts in the corpus of, and then certain interpretations of Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno. Um, and then I also sort of identified the most recent, I think, kind of real innovations in the theory of aesthetics and politics um, from Jacques Concierge and Caroline Levine as sort of also continuing to privilege um, disruption, dissolution, unmaking, hybridity, collision, aleatory, unpredictable uh, as the, the kind of value pole or the good sign of um, then, you know, we don't like what stands in place. Uh, we don't um, like what is sustainable. We don't like what is formed. So then contra this anarcho-vitalist unmaking, right, your political formalism emphasizes building and making and structuration as not just a a possibility, but this sort of a constitutive like engine or motor of of politics. Could you perhaps talk more and, and spell out then 
what your, dare I say, positive articulation mm-hmm. of that critique right. ha- forms and what, what, it, what it means for thinking the aesthetics of politics or the politics of aesthetics. For sure. Yeah. So that, you know, the little word vitalism is sort of doing a lot of work of um, the imaginary that life just springs forth. Right. And that there is a kind of Eden of um, effulgent plenitude that we could be liberated to if only we stopped having the state or if only we stopped having law or we stopped having the symbolic. Right. And um, the sort of alternative, the formalistic position that I try to propose and substantiate and indeed um, try to argue that the history of ideas provides plenty of uh, sort of fodder for and, and, and eloquence about, right, um, is one in which we think forms are not opposed to life, forms are actually infrastructure for life, forms are essential to life, human beings um, have no given format for their existence, right? It takes a village or like, do we use the couple of form or like, should we be in small states or how, how should we be organized? But we're interdependent animals. And that's something that is actually differentiates us from other animals um, <laughs> that we have this prolonged infantile need uh, of one another in order to survive, not just to live well, but to live at all. Um, and so what, sh- what shape should that take, right? There have to be kind of uh, arrangements and patterns and orders for the making of life. So there's a kind of ontological claim that form is essential for our well-being and for our existence, and that we can recognize and admit that necessity and that essence without having to... um, you know, uh, naturalize particular forms or without having to give up on or or forget or repress the contingency of particular forms, right? And so then, you know, historical materialism is something like a procedure of accounting for the contingency that human social experience takes, right? Um, and the, the content of the formalist doctrine, as it were, also is, you know, so necessity and contingency at the same time, right? Um, human being needs, needs form, but there are not, um, there are no given forms, right? But also then um, thinking that every form is, has been made, every form has been contrived and instituted and uh, can be remade, and that we can have a horizon of um, political activity, which is about reformation, not in any anti-revolutionary sense, but in the sense of like actually contriving and designing the structures that will enable human well-being, right? Um, that will facilitate flourishing. Uh, what's the best shape, right? What should what should, what should be our voting system? What should be our our governance, right? Um, you know, we're confronting this question now um, in the ecocide, right? And your previous guest KSR is very good at thinking about this problem, right? Um, is there something about ecocide that requires a suprastate formation, right, or an international confederation, and, and what should that look like? And that's a speculative problem for us, right? Um, and you can't solve that speculative problem if a priori <laughs> or out of the gate you think forms are bad, <laughs> that forms are oppressive, and we just need to burn it all down, and we just need to get out of um, out of the purview of power or something. Yeah, absolutely. And I think before we dive into your specific sustained focus, your literary focus in in your book, I just wanted to draw attention to something that I think is implicit here, but we can tease out, which is the convergence and unintended complicity 
between anarcho-vitalist destituent modalities which are anti-formal or are are about uh, pushing to the limits or accelerating past um, extant forms with neoliberal logics, if not if not broader, just modern capitalist logics of of disruption, right? Um, that yeah. you know, it, it, Marx means Marx has a, a dialectical gambit in mind when he says all that is solid melts into thin air, and he thinks that that history is going to generate something out of it. But I think uh, you are you're holding holding us back from that precipice and saying, well, well wait a minute, mm-hmm. it, you know, this is actually the dominant regime is, has an, has a, has a hegemonic logic of dissolution. Yeah. Um, maybe that's not what we should be doing. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, one wants to, you know, articulate not in an idealist sense, right? We don't want to say, oh, theorists are causing these conditions in the world, right? We want to do it in a materialist sense to say, like, the structure of theory is determined by the structure of the world, right? Like that the ideas in every society are the ideas of the ruling class, right? And the vocation of theory is to make a cut from that determination. The vocation of theory is to know from which it speaks, right? To understand its conjunctures and then figure out what some other logics might be, right? So if we are supplied since 1973 with the abundant logic of the dismantling of social institutions and the just highly minimalist vectoring of state power towards the purpose of accumulation and away from the purpose of flourishing or away from the purpose of, you know, and of course people will argue that's never been the purpose of the state. So, um, but, um, but that's how it, you know, Marxian anthropology would suggest, right? But the, um, if, you know, that if we if we cannot see the this affinity of our thought with the um, kind of empirical practices of power, that that says that's a um, you know an aporia in in our reasoning and an insufficient self scrutiny, right? And the whole gesture of critique as sort of like Kant, Hegel, and certainly Marx, you know, kind of produce it, right? Is to look back on the conditions in which your thought is possible, right? Um, So I do wanna articulate that affinity, it's true. And I do wanna point out, I think the underside of that, um, I think Jody Dean is really eloquent about this, the political theorist Jody Dean, that um, you know we have actually lived through a revolution in the United States in the last 40 years. And it's been a revolution of incredibly disciplined exercise of collective sovereignty by the collective that is not is against us right <laughs> you know um it has been a, a, a incredibly disciplined from the level of school board and local election on up to the presidency and the supreme court right and the interpreting and mobilizing of institutions for the sake of oligarchic and plutocratic wealth transfer and anti-democratic consolidations not the truth of those institutions necessarily, but they're mobilizing for that. And this has been a highly, highly disciplined and effective practice. And that has to be a lesson to us that our suspicion of the vehiculations of collective agency hasn't gotten us anywhere. So moving from one revolutionary context to perhaps one of a different kind, (laughs) um, in your book, you focus, as sort of Scott already mentioned, on literary realism in general, and then on the Victorian realist novel in particular. 
which the latter you suggest is a rich historical vehicle for thinking through the stakes of what you just diagrammed as political formalism. So mm-hmm. against certain currents in Marxist literary theory, as you've already mentioned, you argue that literary realism is irreducible to a certain metaphysics of representation, mm-hmm. wherein the novel, its various signs, affects, and grammars are judged according to whether they succeed or fail to correspond or refer to an extant historical reality. So then in this context, what exactly is literary realism on your analysis and how does its particular mode of political formalism work? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm extremely interested in thinking about literary realism as an experiment, as speculative, as a wild kind of thought that isn't available to us in ordinary life, right? Who gets to think in the third person? Who gets to produce, you know, omniscient perspective? Who gets to survey broad swaths of like, you know, psychic interiority and social, you know, expanse and social depth and different social classes and long historical arcs and stuff, right? Only these made up realist narrators, right? And um, this experimental quality, I think, you know, it, it's taking um, into account or it's giving itself certain constraints, right? Realism, you could define it as against, say, an irrealism of um, infinity uh, that, you know, we take time and space constraints seriously in realism. Nobody lives forever. <laughs> There's a lot of death and birth and sex and the realist novel, right? <laughs> Nobody, we're not on other planets. We're just like stuck on earth. Like this is what we have, right? Um, but it, so these, but within these constraints, the, the great moment of ferment of literary realism in the 19th century is one of tremendous social trans transformation, right? Industrial revolution, imperial um, expanse, and then imperial contraction and contestation, um, democratizing movements, great explosions of literacy, the the urbanization of mass population for this first time in world history, right? So there's all this like social churn going on. And realism is this experimental form for trying to figure out like, what should society be shaped like, right? What should, what should we be doing all day long? Um, what are the, what are, given the constraints that human beings are mortal and that they're vulnerable, what should our societies look like? Um, and then, so I like to think about realism as a kind of theory of institutions and a theory of limits um, and a theory of, of human sociability that um, maybe has some different precepts than um, the reification that might be attributed to it or the kind of um, boringness or unimaginativeness that might be attributed to it, but also has some different precepts from, say, the anarcho-vitalist imaginary, right? The realist novel is super into schools and banks and governmental agencies and churches and like the places where banal existence is produced and the offices where it happens, right? Um, and th- somebody has to think about those banalities and there's a real, a, a lot of power there and a lot of um, possibility there. And so is it possible that the, the mode of literary realism is condemned not, is conflated with Right, the the limited imagination or the constrained perspective of the authors when it, it, it sort of at the expense of the mode itself. Would that be fair to say? 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and then we end up with these kind of um, approaches to realism and literary study where we want to correlate it to the, the context of the authors or correlate it to the biography of the authors. We want to sort of say like, well, the realist novel is only a voice box of the values of its time, right? Instead of, no, there's an imminently critical operation that's possible in any kind of literary production, right? And these people are involved in an extremely, um, you know, voracious <laughs> and demanding kind of imagining of what the world should be like. I like to say, I, mean, I know I say it in the book, that, you know, all of the major Victorian realist novelists, they were all journalists. And they all, were all successful journalists and they all gave that up because they wanted to do something else. You know, Trollope and Thackeray, Trollope a little bit less, so he was a bureaucrat his whole life, a postman, right? But Thackeray and Elliot and Dickens and so on, they, they had jobs writing how things were and they wanted to say something else and they wanted to know something else. And they started writing how things could be. Okay, so I have the big doozy of the question, okay. and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start reading, uh -huh. and hopefully I, I, can, I can get it off the page. With the caveat that we don't wish to simply conflate your project with the work we do within the Money on the Left Editorial Collective, we nevertheless find many areas of sympathy and convergence between us. Perhaps above all, we find that your emphatically anti-lapsarian insistence on the speculative and political generativity of abstraction resonates greatly with our conception of money as an abstract and constitutive political form. While you don't overtly thematize this in your book per se, you come closest to doing so in a passage on page 46, which if you don't mind, I'm going to read for our audience. Differentiating your theory of literary realism from other influential Marxist interlocutors, you write, prominent recent efforts to advance Marxist aesthetic theory of the contemporary have once again taken up realism. And here too, Alberto Toscano, Annie McClanahan, uh, Lee Claire Labarge, Alison Schonkweiler, and Joshua Clover generally prize reference above all else. For Marxists, realism thus paradoxically occupies two poles simultaneously, and this is what you were referring to before. The paragon of ideology, the imaginary resolution of real contradictions, the false suture of a partiality as a totality, and the paragon of artistic truth-telling, the gold standard representing actualities behind the veil. And this is supercharged language for us. So what's striking for us in this passage is how it links a problematic metaphysics of literary reference to what is, in our view, an equally problematic metaphysics of money qua passive representation. Money is regularly imagined to be a veil over real extant relations and private resources and the gold standard as a system of signification in which truth-telling is somehow guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Against this monetary representationalism, we would contend that money is constitutive, 
it's transformable, and it's public, and it is above all an abstraction that is contestable. As such, it enables radical forms of political activation, including urgent contemporary struggles for abolition, reparations, universal health care, and uh, an expressly anti-imperialist global Green New Deal. So what we're wondering is, would you be willing to reflect a bit on this language and some of these resonances that we're picking up on? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. It may be the best question of all the ones that you guys prepared for me um, because um, it's so, it speaks to how generative and creative you guys are that you can think about the capacity of abstractions across disciplines and that you can um, think about uh, the affinities of different kinds of arguments. You know, I'm just a lonely literary <laughs> person. <laughs> I did write a book about the history of finance, but that's not this book. <laughs> and um, and and you know, but but I, I think that you're fundamentally right that they're the my most favorite sentence in this whole book. It's only three words. Maybe you guys liked it. Abstractions also liberate. We're very familiar aesthetic humanists with the position that generalizations are bad, that abstractions are bad, that institutions are bad, that big ideas exclude the particulars, right? And we think that we can only sort of have this job of championing the particular and the content and the substance and the real and the body and the stuff, right? And um, so the the work that I'm trying to do in terms of pointing out that, that viewpoint and that mindset and how pervasive it is in the aesthetic humanities, I think is a parallel logical move and a parallel critical move to the work you guys are trying to do in uh, suggesting that um, the way that we regard the institution of money is really impoverished. Uh, that um, given the social circumstance of the late capitalist state and given the tools available to us of the Fed, for instance, <laughs> um, that there is a possibility to activate the political determination of what money represents or, or how money functions, right? And that that possibility should be seized by people and it should be articulated and named by our leaders, <laughs> right? So I think that... Um, you know, there's a, a lot of affinity or a lot of parallelism between the approach to institutions, the approach to the state, the approach to representation, the symbolic, and so on that I'm interested in, and um, your interests. What I think, if one was to try to, um, you know, articulate a possible point of disjuncture, right, is like, how do we acknowledge the outside of the position, right? So I say um, the existing forms that are available to human beings um, can be repurposed, reconstellated, they're malleable, they can be mobilized for different ends, right? That politics is the work of, of collectively deliberating what kind of shape for our lives we should have. And um, that we don't have to have a, a kind of revolutionary iconography of the endless horizon of messianic new forms or non-forms. We can work with some of our available forms, right? How do we um, articulate that dialectical capacity, that existing possibility, that political prospect, right? While also acknowledging 
that this is a delimited horizon of action, right? Of course, people who want to abolish, abolish the value form are always going to be unsatisfied with you, with your work, with Stephanie Kelton's work, with someone, right? Of course, our um, radical anarcho-bro colleagues, right, are always going to think that Stephanie Kelton is insufficient, that Bernie is not enough, and, and so on. And, and so what is, what's the kind of gesture um, intellectually and then also, you know, rhetorically, right, that gets us to avow money as an instrument in this concrete situation in which we find ourselves, that the available determinants of the situation per permit to be used quite differently and deployed quite differently, right? And that's a different question from, should we have a society with no money or should we have a society with no abstraction, right? Um, so I think that um, I really find exciting that insistent uh, by your working group, right, and by the, some of its great accomplished scholars <laughs> and leaders, right, um, that we can do different things with these tools. I got super, super excited when Janet Yellen gave her induction speech, um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's a, probably the thing I you might have to delete out. Of this <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm going to get fired, but who's yelling now, right? I mean, the things that she said about what state power actually has available to it to produce values that benefit the greater good, the greater mass of the people and so on. Like those were really exciting formations. <laughs> um, so I, I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of affinity between our projects. And I think to that last point on Yellen, at least in the context of the COVID response and the, the seeming like, ongoing crack up of the orthodox sort of monetary policy mold that has been dominant for the last 40 to 50 years this as as you say this sense of the potential for malleability it's we it's interesting to see in context with your work that opening right and and potentially thinking at least you know we had KSR on on the on the show a while ago about the way that that opening in a in a formal sense in the political economic sphere is also producing all different types of opening in literary spheres is, you know, I, yeah. I think that that's a, it's a really interesting way in which there's like a, almost like a dialogic um, phenomenon between the different disciplines or areas in which we're thinking along these similar terms. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? Different um, aesthetic formations are possible, different aesthetic practices are possible when you have a different relationship to mediation, right? And so if you can understand money as a um, collective sovereign driven um, determination of value, right? That doesn't have a substance <laughs> behind it in large part, right? Um, but that can be deployed you have a kind of orientation towards what forms are able to do that isn't um, predicated upon their um, transparency of representation or their uh, relationship, their presencing function, right? Can yeah, and I think what you just pointed out there, I just wanted to um, not really push back, but just to kind of clarify something, right? I, I know when you say, you know, that we think money is not being, you know, like backed by a substance, right? In the in this in the standard understanding of gold or silver mm -hmm. or, or whatever it is, but I think our, our relationship would be to say that it is not non-substantial in the same way that I, 
I think a lot of us here would probably treat language, right? This language is not without substance. Language, <laughs> language really organizes the world, but it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a chit or a finite thing. We don't have to presume a chit or a finite substance somehow behind language, mm -hmm. right? That the language is. Um, the language of the world is participating in the whole of the world in heterogeneous ways. Uh, so, again, I just think like breaking with the metaphysics of representationalism is something that um, you do quite well, and I think other hum humanity scholars can do, but but not when it comes to money. You know, money money mm -hmm. is this kind of blinding um, social form in that way. Yeah, I think so. One way that I like to think about that is um, that there is a material efficacy to money, right? There is a performative power. There is an agency of the symbolic that isn't, um, you know, reducible to um, a fixed substance behind it, as you say, or that isn't um, isn't conflatable to um, the the presences. But it does produce things. <laughs> right. Um, it does act. Uh, and we can um, have more or less collective exertion of power around those acts. Right. Given that it's the vehicle of um, valorization in our society. Right. Get, within these constraints of what this society is. Right. Um, so, yeah. So what's our vocabulary for um, thinking about uh, the performative efficacy, thinking about the, you know, um, forms that produce things, right? Or, um, uh, you know, kind of activations of materiality, right? Um, what Lacan refers to, you know, the, the letter has a, a material substrate, right? That's not a, a substance, that's not a solidity, that's not a concretude, right? It's an abstraction too. Um, but it is, it is one that is, that takes hold of us. So, Another similarity or affinity between our projects, I think, is to, to sort of, you know, in the face of kind of like uh, uh, frustration and ultimately calling for like violent revolution or exodus or refutation, we're, we're up to like recovery and reexamination and rediscovery. And, um, uh, and, and one of the, the ways that your book does this, demonstrates this, um, is by you know, through case study, right? We, we'd love for you to walk us through your second chapter in which you reread Marx and Engels' Manifesto for the Communist Party through the lens of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, which I think is a, is a very strange pairing, but wonderfully done, right? But what, what theoretical or meta-methodological moves are you making here and how do they serve an alternate history of political form, uh, which mm -hmm. can be, as you put it, necessary, malleable, and constructible? Okay, that's great. So I think um, the issue is almost like, what is the middle distance, right? What is the mid-level that we can think about that isn't, um, you know, total abolition of the value form or the complete um, uh, hypothesis of a realm without abstraction or um, of, of unstructured life, right? Of, um, of anarchic primordial chaos. <laughs> um, and <laughs> what is, you know, and then on the, on the sort of other side, like just only adhering too closely to um, the this you know smallnesses where nobody ever wants to think about what power is actually available to us, right? So I think that that mid level is tactical thinking. I think that it is strategic thinking. It is what are the tools available in a situation and how do you use them, 
right? And um, the thing that I'm really interested in as a problem between the manifesto of the Communist Party, which is a document that uh, Marx and Engels produce in um, late 1847, that comes out in the winter, you know, of 1848, and that, um, uh, uh, or in the winter right before 1848, and then, you know, has, uh, arguably a um, exhortative relationship to the springtime of the peoples, <laughs> you know, across Europe in 1848, that document, which comes out at the same time as Wuthering Heights, is exactly this problem of like, what is the distance or what is the middle? How are we thinking about the constraints of a situation? How are we thinking about um, the absolute quality or the openings in the political horizon? So to make that more clear, in the manifesto, there is an assertion that all of uh, human society is a history of class struggle, right? And there is also a kind of concluding gesture that um, the communist revolution will bring with it an end to all antagonism, right? And so what is kind of, I think, a problem of um, the rhetorical strategy there, of the exhortative anti-capitalist strategy there, is the reduction of the, of the um, expanse or the total set, as it were, of social contradiction and social antagonism to the specifically capitalist version of it. Because it simply isn't true that if we did away with capitalist antagonism, we would have a non-antagonistic society. And it simply isn't true that we would have a motivated or imminent or natural logic of how to be organized, right? To go back to our sort of earlier discussions about like there isn't a given form of human life, right? And um, if Marxism implies this, which I don't think Marx at all consistently does, um, but I think, you know, deleteriously at points, um, then, it's failing the bar of historical materialism of understanding what is contingent about the capitalist articulation of social antagonism, what is contingent about its, its managing of social antagonism through the class system. And um, it's the problem of um, how you see, uh, yes, we can organize um, a historical, a phase theory of history according to the kind of basic class relations. And yes, we can particularly tell the progressive um, kind of development of capitalism according to the simplification, he calls it, right, of class relations. But this isn't all of human history. And if we tell, if we represent history as, all, you know, in these bombastic ways that he does, as all of this, then we lose the underside or the underlap, you know, of history with capitalism. We lose the kind of other part of the set of human antagonisms. And what I think is so um, amazing about Wuthering Heights is that it has this repertoire and vocabulary of images um, and, it, and tropes that let it think about antagonism as a kind of um, transhistorical, you know, problem for human beings. You know, the basic problem of the hearth where it sets so much of its action of architecture, of construction, of householding, of familial shape. Um, all of these are just inexhaustible dilemmas in that book. And at the same time, there's this just um, exuberant, hyper-stylized, incredibly beautiful and uncanny kind of production of symmetry and of forms and of doubles and of the kind of problematic of, um, of formalization itself that um, just helps us to think about how you can have 
and it, you know, kind of infinity of social contradictions and the ability to inscribe formally the fact of that infinity of contradictions such that your proposed political solutions don't imagine, fantasize that you would ever be away, you know, be done with contradiction. dig in a little bit into some of uh, what you mentioned about the, the spatialization in Wuthering Heights in, in, in an architectural sense. You also motivate through this through a, a photographic analysis as well in the way photography as a sort of forming medium uh, does this too. So in Wuthering Heights, as you said, we think about construction of homes, rooms, window frames, this doubling that you mentioned, which... These forms seem to shelter, maintain, and then also open social space in -hmm. ways that even outstrip domination and antagonism at times. Um, Can you give us a little bit more detail or a taste of this specifically architectural analysis and why in the context of this ontological argument about antagonism, right? And, And this ontological argument essentially about historical materialism that outstrips this very specific eminent capitalist class antagonisms. Mm -hmm. Why you see these architectural mediums and modes as so important for thinking that trans-historical problematic? Yeah. Um, So, right, architecture is kind of a master trope throughout the book. Um, It is, as you are getting the sense, you know, an hour in a a kind of a Frankenstein, right? There's a lot in the book, (laughs) but but architecture is one of the spines of it. Um, And that is partly because it is a, you know, trope of construction, and I'm interested in constructive criticism. It's a trope of building, and I'm interested in putting things together. It is a art that straddles the line between necessity and contingency, right? It's Hegel's first art for that reason. Um, human beings need shelter, right? But there's, but you know, how are you going to make it? What shape is it going to have, right? These are um, questions that um, are on that, like you know, threshold of materially, necessarily, you know, um, essential, but also kind of open to variability to different formations, right, um, to the, to different processes of creativity. And so it's, it really, like, architecture just holds so much for me of this kind of problematic of, like, we need shape to live, <laughs> we need shelter to live, but, you know, should you have a triangle roof or, or A-frame or, right, like, how should you be, right? And um, I think that Wuthering Heights, it's just part of the um, just absolute, um, you know, like, just, extreme, I can't even have adjectives for it, you know, sublime force of that book 
is that it keeps constantly trying to juxtapose highly textured, extremely attentive figurations of the made uh, environment, of the built environment, of fence posts and window frames and lintels and doors and um, uh, hearths and walls and um, house structures overall and exterior walls and like it just cannot stop lavishing attention on those things. And they're not, um, and that is a whole uh, vocabulary of um, just ideas and of images that is kind of, what is that doing in the same book with stuff about, you know, the arrival of the bourgeoisie and stuff about um, the insufficiency of the family form and stuff about immoderate desires, right? Um, so there, there's kind of just like all the stuff in the plot that is excessive and wild and unsolvable. And then there's all this stuff in the form that is um, detailed and um, uh, material and instantiated and installed, right? And, um, and, and then you can trace the contour of it and you can study it. And so I think that the book that, you know, this is how I think novels work. They kind of produce these like weird combinations where you're like, okay, so what do those things have to do with each other is the thought that novel is trying to have, right? So what what is, what is Wuthering Heights doing with like this incredible lavishness of form and this um, just incredible immoderacy and uncontainability of um, passion and of antipathy and of fighting and of economic transformation and of the slave trade and so on. It, you know, it's trying to tell us <laughs> that form is a, um, a technique for managing antagonism and a, and a necessary one and a useful one and not a dispelling of antagonism, not one that means that you have to lose track of its extent or its, you know, its, its scope. So one of the things uh, I really appreciate that's coming out here uh, is to kind of come back to to the critique of anarcho vitalism, right? It's what what you're showing throughout the book, but in this chapter that we're talking about in particular, is that the vitality is 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 with the form. Mm -hmm. It's shot through the form. It's you know um, you're not you're not arguing against vitality. You're you're saying it seems to me that. Form is the question is a question of vitality. Mm -hmm. It's not the expunging of vitality or the right. you know the yeah the, the containing the of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the containing of it. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I really just that opposition that you know form constrains, form contains that institutions um, police us or that um, uh, you know those which they do, but <laughs> which they do, but that that's yeah. the that's the limit of what they do, or that that's the that's the um, only thing we can. Say about what they offer us, right? Um, that is is containment, and then that the whole value that emerges as the negative, you know, Rorschach of that, or the face Ruben face illusion of that, that um, then formlessness and lack of containment and lack of constraint—that that's what freedom is, as opposed to freedom is the meaningful deployment of forms for human flourishing or something like that, right? Capacitating our um, our management of necessity so that we don't denigrate necessity, but we're not ruled by it. So speaking of um, uh, books that hold very different things together, mm -hmm. um, at, the, at the opposite end, maybe, maybe it's the opposite, 
from from Wuthering Heights, we have your chapter on Alice in Wonderland. Oh yeah, <laughs> which which you very provocatively in a super cool way are like you're trying to you're trying to convince us that it's a realist novel, right? Um, which you know I'm not sure that anyone's ever made that <laughs> made that case before, right? Um, but you know you're not just you're not just being shocking for the sake of being shocking, right? There is a, you're, you're pulling out something, you're drawing something out about the abstractness of the realist novel that we tend to repress or not avow <laughs> by calling Alice in Wonderland a realist novel. Right. That's my initial gloss, but maybe you can yeah, yeah. unpack what you're doing here and why, it, why it's so important. Sure. Yeah, that's totally the chapter where I'm talking nonsense, um, except that the point of the nonsense is, you know, to produce something by this dramatic inversion, right? And I'm not, and, and it's less saying um, Alice in Wonderland is realist as a text, right? That it functions in the same way as that its own internal properties of form function as a kind of distillation or crystallization of realist form, that it is something like the symbolic logic, the reduction to the minima of what realism tries to do. Because Alice is such a um, experimental investigation into what are words and who fixes the meaning of words, right? Um, what is social order and who puts it in place? What is sovereignty and to whom does it belong and how do we undo it, right? Um, and what do these things have to do with each other in terms of um, is the... Uh, uh, it, why is why is a question of beheading and off with their headness and and the sovereign decision on life right also a question of punning and of the containment of um, or the uh, proliferation of semantic quality right so um, it's a it's a kind of prismatic intensification or hardening right of the tendencies of experimental inquiry into how so how society should be uh, that I think realism performs. So that's the kind of force of it. Um, and then um, it's also, you know, kind of playing with some of the uh, historical um, events of uh, its author having been a mathematician and that kind of uh, revolutionary advent of symbolic logic in relation to other kinds of mathematics in the 19th century. And so what does it mean to, to think about distillation as a representative strategy? And what does it make possible even as it is boiling things down? It's, a, it's yeah, it's, it's a little bit <laughs> um, bananas, but <laughs> hopefully it's a, a breather in the middle of the book too. <laughs> I I just really appreciate like to to boil down to something like Alice in Wonderland is asking ontological questions, right? And so by necessity, right, their 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 political formalism then can can uh kind of feed into that that nonsense with a with a certain logical structure. And I, I just really appreciated that um the way you you took on that so paradoxically. Um and I think, though, moving from that context, I wanted to talk about your final chapter, which mm -hmm. reads States of Psychoanalysis, Formalization, mm -hmm. and the Space of the Political. And within you plumb sort of deep impulses within psychoanalysis, which, in case listeners haven't sort of picked up on yet, is another one of these combinatory sort of substrate themes in this book. 
Um, so you plumb these impulses to theorize, theorize what might be called the inescapable psychopolitical problem of the polis. On your account, why is psychoanalysis such a meaningful tradition through which to confront this indelible political problematic? Sure. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's like another one of the bolts in the Frankenstein's mm -hmm. neck or whatever. <laughs> 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 psychoanalysis. Um, so I think the first thing to say is psychoanalysis is a discourse of the objective, right? It is, you know, however much we might want to sort of assimilate it to an egoistic um, self-help uh, personalizing, you know, kind of pathological formation, um, bourgeois, insidious, et cetera, it's an account of the structure of social relations. And it is an account of language as the medium of social relations and of um, kind of um, uh, ungrounded theocratic, non-theocratic reason and sort of like the, uh, the problem of secular modernity as the structure of the uh, kind of scaffold against which like the human subject emerges or the void that the human subject answers. So it's a, it's a, I think extremely descriptive um, kind of project and discourse of, of trying to understand the contradictions of modernity that um, also uh, attend capitalism and um, that it has a kind of different register and a different idiom for do it for you know investigating those contradictions um so that's that's sort of the you know in the biggest sense like I just think it's a it's a it makes sense of social relations and it, and it puts the um, arbitrariness of social relations first and foremost, kind of front and center. Like why do human beings suffer, right? <laughs> why is there discontent in culture? You know, why is there um, uh, uh, discontent in civilization, right? Because there is not an imminence to it, right? Because there is not a groundedness of it um, because we can't make the words coincide with the things um, and so it has then the kind of affinities with the formalist project I'm articulating, as well as affinities with what I think a historical materialist project is. Um, so that's why it's so, so important. But then more specifically in that chapter, I'm working with some of um, Lacan's and Freud's own thinking about institutions and their own thinking about um, the relational space of psychoanalysis, right? You can't do psychoanalysis on yourself, right? It is not self-help. <laughs> it, it is a dyadic relation. It has to take place within very specific formal conditions, right? The conditions of the clinic, the couch, <laughs> the two people, the variable session, uh, and the um, kind of usually with the authorization of the institution that will enable the analyst to have been trained and the patient to transmit what it is that they have, um, you know, done in the, in the process of their working. Um, and so there is a lot in the history of psychoanalysis of meditation on what an institution is um, and why you need it for <laughs> this practice of, um, of helping human beings suffer less. Um, and so that makes it like, I think an intrinsically political theory. Um, and then of course, you know, Freud wrote a whole number of political theoretical texts um, as did Lacan. So um, 
so that's sort of a, a why psychoanalysis in some way. Um, then there are also slightly more historical reasons about the, um, you know, prof like Freud was one of the great, great, great appraisers of the realist novel. Um, he said that Eliot and Dickens and Trollope and Thackeray um, had invented psychoanalysis before he had. You know, so there, there's a kind of um, according um, of and an esteem for the realist novel and psychoanalysis that is also um, really enabling for me. Thank you. And to to get us, uh, I think, to the end of the interview, we want to step out of uh, the order of forms or get a little bit adjacent to it, as you have in, in other articles um, where you've, mm -hmm. you've written about everything from the so-called method wars in literary studies to reflections on what you have named the climate realism of contemporary novelist Kim Stanley Robinson, who was a recent guest on our show. So th throughout these articles and publications, you place front and center the question of theory or better of theorizing as a social formation. Um, and through this writing, it's, it appears that, that for you, theorizing is not simply a specialized mode of academic labor within the academy, but it is rather a, at once a critical and generative activity that takes place through fiction as much as through nonfiction. Mm -hmm. We like this commitment, uh, in part because it links the labor of the humanities to constitutive world building while pushing back mm -hmm. against certain self-loathing impulses in the neoliberal academy. Um, see before on how well is that working for you? Um, yeah. <laughs> is this a fair characterization of your work or, or are we way off base? Could you, and and if, it's, if it is fair, um, could you say more about why it is that you prize this kind of unconventional, uh, even promiscuous approach to theorizing? Yeah, I think that's very fair and I appreciate it very much. I'm so glad that you guys um, uh, could read that. Um, I, I just think that um, creative speculative, wild, utopian inventiveness is a deep, deep, deep faculty of the human. <laughs> um, I, I really do. I am a humanist in that way. I think human beings enjoy play and abstraction. I think um, it's a staggering truth that human beings made abstract cave paintings before they knew how to make houses, <laughs> you know, 70,000 years ago, right? Before they knew how to bury bodies. Like, you know, abstraction is a is a faculty um, of, of our our um, creative um, power, uh, our creative capacity to make things. Um, so I, I love that I have labor conditions that, and you know, afford me the um, security and the time and the venue to, um, you know, try to take my mind wild places. <laughs> um, and I think that these, that this is equipment for living, right? Our ideas clearly haven't sufficed right now. Right. Um, we live in a society of mass immiseration with more and less brutal, brutal instantiations of it and spectacles of it, um, more or less viciousness um, and, and, you know, mass, mass inequity. Um, and we are rapidly uh, losing the ability to live. Right. And that's not a generic problem of human being. That is a, um, a problem of our, our our oligarchs. But it is going to be true and unevenly distributed that people won't be alive. Right. This is what the fact that in 20 years, you know, billions of people live on land that will be uninhabitably hot or underwater or both. This is a recipe for mass death, a recipe for forced extinction, a recipe for mass violence as well. Um, so shit is not working. People are miserable and the earth is burning up. 
So we need new ideas. And we need ideas that aren't just messaging and telegraphing and DMing what's already here, right? There's a kind of, I think, real collapse of um, both the theoretical and the aesthetic imaginary right now into this just endless sadistic documenting um, of of how bad shit is. Um, And that's not really uh, galvanizing as art. That's immobilizing as art. Um, So I, you know, would kind of just defend, yeah, ontologically and politically, tactically, um, and um, libidinally, the the what what theory has to offer us, what big ideas, what speculation, what thinking abstractly, what getting, what defamiliarization and getting outside the normal um, normal frames of reference have to offer us. I just wanted to acknowledge and, and show some appreciation for um, your own acknowledgement, right, of the conditions of the labor that you're doing and, and you know, maybe invite you to say a little bit more about theorizing and the space-time labor uh, value mm-hmm. that is required into this, this sort of essential labor of theorizing our way out of this climate mess, uh, out of all other associated yeah. messes. What do we, you know... What do we need to do that? Right. So we obviously need lots of of collaborative time, I think, because none of the available idioms are working. And that includes that the engineers don't know how to, um, you know, convey the crisis of value that we're living in, even if they know how to decarbonize. Um, They don't know how to motivate the political action. But the storytellers haven't quite figured out how to galvanize uh, mass insistence on decarbonization or on other um, uh, ameliorative measures, right, Um, because maybe they don't have enough um, riveting facts or they don't have a good enough sense of um, of what the function of storytelling is. But we need a lot more collaborative, imaginative, and, um, you know, technically inventive uh, work together across disciplines. I do think that's true. Um, I think that individuals need time to, um, to spend reading, to spend marinating to spend producing collaborative knowledge in the space of the classroom. I don't at all oppose research and teaching. I think that's like just totally not what I mean when I say like we need time for thinking, but people need time for teaching. Right. And that means that they need small class sizes and they need workable loads and they need um, the ability to to have preparation that involves reading new things and changing their course syllabi all the time and like genuinely encountering and making um, ideas happen in the classroom. You know, there's this line in. uh, Rachel Burma and Laura Heffernan's book about um, the teaching archive, um, about how like in the humanities, you deal with students saying like, oh, I couldn't make it to class. What did I miss? And they say, you missed everything and you missed it forever because we make the knowledge happen in that haptic, <laughs> you know, collaborative <laughs> dynamic moment of, of, of mutual determination of meaning, right? That is what humanist method is. Um, and so I think we need, to, we, we need time for research-driven teaching and research-generative teaching, right? Um, And um, that that is, yeah, a matter of what we also know is just emphatically and empirically know is good for students, you know, about small class sizes and about a lot of individual attention and about a lot of um, dynamic kind of evolution of what's on the syllabus and a lot of in-person, you know, um, collective work. 
the other thing I might say about that, because I really, really, really care about this, is <laughs> we need um, people who think about our conditions of labor as um, the, you know, we and who are willing to do the work to make the place where we work work, right? Um, service in the institution, right? Being the associate head of my department of 100 people working in my academic union, these are things that have taught me so, so, so much about big ideas, about communication, about pattern, about organizing, about power and politics, right? Like it is a formal problem. How should you organize a class grid or make a budget or what should, what, at what level should departments cooperate and so on. And um, I wrote two books in the last five years while I was doing um, really heavy administrative work. And I think that every faculty member must do it <laughs> and, and also must do it in their union um, because self-governance has to mean something. And because making our institutions functional and habitable is also, you know, that's also content. Just wondering, returning to the, the, the self-loathing academic and the neoliberal academy, um, uh, part of that being potentially linked to um, perpetuation and sort of throwing one's hands up at the, the structure as it is and saying, I can't do anything about it. And I can't create that space that I know is necessary in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so let's just burn it all down. Right. Right. Um, right. No, I think that's absolutely pervasive. And some of it is a response to feeling themselves burned, right? You know, um, burnout is a generation and a cultural structure of feeling and so on for lots and lots of reasons, right? Um, we, again, have a society that isn't immiserating people on a mass scale. The amount of overwork that is extracted from people, no matter what their level of compensation is or their level of job security is, is just intolerable, right? Um, and for, I think it's really, really vivid um, in the pandemic that um, academics are like uh, essential workers in how much they've been asked to overfunction, how much they've been asked to overproduce. We were insulated from uh, the dangers of um, many people, not all, were insulated from the dangers that say healthcare workers or grocery store workers had in the last 20 months, but not from the extremizing intensification of the demands on our work and certainly not from the um, emotional toll of what it has taken to try to be there for students and invent new modalities and um, uh, respond to our employer's contempt for our survival and so on. Um, so I, you can understand what the burnout is. You can understand what the dissolution is. But your fellow people have some power to, be, to join with you and transform a lot of those conditions, right? A lot of these power structures are actually open and available. It's not that hard to be department head. It really isn't. And people can do that work together, <laughs> you know? And that's what faculty governance, that's the beautiful promise of it is. And it is really, really, really rewarding to make a faculty union. And it is really rewarding to do that in relationship to student unions and in relationship to graduate employees unions and in relationship to staff and janitorial unions and in relationship to your public school teachers union. And to think about, you know, 4 million people work in higher education, right? That's more than in the airline industry or the restaurant industry, these giant sectors that got COVID bailouts that we did not in the same way or that we didn't have value for. We serve 20 million people nationwide. Like our work is incredibly valuable. And there's a lot of power in that value that we can collectively seize up together. I know everybody's tired and everything is terrible, <laughs> but, um, but I really think that affirming 
the the good stuff that we have in the in the um, agency that we have is the only way out. Anna Cornblow, this was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my God, I'm so honored that you guys read my work and, I, and I'm such an admirer of the efforts you guys are making to just think differently. 